Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today we present part two of the Producers' Choice Awards. This is the Poetry Edition. All of today's music is by jazz drummer and composer Max Roach. We open with Man from South Africa off of Percussion, Bittersweet. Poetry. Many might turn away even at the mention of the word, but to do so would miss out on work that reveals humans grappling with the great questions of their moments. Today we feature four poets who help us see our own predicaments. One who shows us we contain multitudes. One whose life and writing was always anti-fascist. One who challenges expectations of female submissiveness and one who interrupts the falsifications of narrative structures. Those poets are Fernando Pessoa, Muriel Rukeyser, Sylvia Plath, and Talia Field, and we'll hear from them in that order. So we begin with Fernando Pessoa, who is quite literally the odd man out here, as he is the only male. But also, he's the only poet not from the U.S. He was born in Lisbon, Portugal, and spent most of his life there, except for 10 years of his childhood when he lived in Durban, South Africa. We did two shows on Pessoa's life and work with our guest, translator and biographer Richard Zenith. This segment centers on Pessoa's notion of cultural imperialism, but begins with the discussion of his most famous poem, Autopsychography, which goes like this. The poet is a feigner, who's so good at his act, he even feigns the pain of pain he feels in fact. And those who read his words will feel in his writing neither of the pains he has, but just the one they are missing. And so around its track, this thing called the heart winds, a little clockwork train to entertain our minds. And now, part two of the 2021 Producers Choice Awards, the poetry show on Interchange on WFHB. This poem in particular kind of serves as a, a nice sketch of Pessoa's art uh, on its own, right? It, it can open up into how we might think about Pessoa as a poet in general. Indeed. The very first line in, in Portuguese, o poeta é um fingidor, the poet is a feigner. And that word fingidor, from the verb fingir, is a key to uh, Pessoa, Pessoa's whole poetics. And the idea of uh, fingidor, which I've translated as feigner, you could also translate that as pretender, faker, perhaps. But the idea isn't so much faking in the, uh, in the sense of falsifying, but of acting, that poet is only acting, performing, inventing. And so all of this is in there. Perhaps a good word too is, is the idea of forge in English, hmm. which has both the idea, can have the idea of, of, of forging, like uh, an ironmonger forges objects now, and so it's creating, but forge can also mean counterfeiting. And so both of these senses are, 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 are true in, in Pessoa. So the poet defames the pain of pain he feels in fact. So you have the feeling of the poet, but then in the poem, what is conveyed isn't 
exactly that the feeling of the poet would be, which would be impossible. So, so the poet, according to Pessoa, has to reconstruct in a way, poetically construct what he or she feels. And then the reader won't feel either of these two pains of, of the poet, that is the actual pain or the written pain, but just pain they're missing. So this is yet a third pain that the, that the reader has. So you have this, uh, so is very aware of the difficulty of, of communication. And so this is a bit what this poem is about. And his uh, whole theory of, of literature and poetry is this attempt to communicate always a very fraught enterprise. And so this poem is really, as you said, an ars poetica, his, his theory of poetry. And then in other poems, you get a lot of very autobiographical mm-hmm. feeling and emotion uh, from Pessoa that then is, is transformed. But it's interesting, the third stanza, so around its track, this thing called the heart winds, a little clockwork train to entertain our minds. It sounds in one way as if Pessoa is um, demoting uh, the heart and feelings and, and, and that the mind is what counts, mm-hmm. you know, that this exists for, for the sake of the mind to entertain the mind. However, it's also interesting because this thing called the heart winds on its own. It has its own life. Mm. So emotions and feeling finally cannot be controlled. They have, they, and Pessoa is also very aware of that. So Pessoa is a, an intellectual poet, but one who feels very intensely all the time. How do you approach a biography of a man who, I think, mostly lived in his work or in his thoughts? Did it give you pause to think about it as a like a full-blown biography? What is a life of this kind of man? Well, I have to say, initially, I was I was very worried mm-hmm. because th- there is a, a, a lack of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, his father died of tuberculosis when he was five years old. His mother uh, remarried a man who um, had been a ship's captain, but then was appointed Portugal's consul to Durban, which was, at that time is an English colony of South Africa. So that's where Pessoa went with his mother when he was seven and a half. And he, so he had most of his education spent nine years in South Africa. And so he had all the schooling in English. And there, there was a trip in the middle of all that where they went back to Portugal. So Pessoa has a fairly active childhood. Mm-hmm. But then when Pessoa goes back to Lisbon in 1905, he's 17 years old at that point, And he rarely goes out of the city, uh, much less the country, until his death. And, and then really not much happens on the outside. So I was wondering my God, how, how write a biography about, about such a, such a figure. And so I, I certainly never expected a biography to be a thousand pages. <laughs> but so it, it was interested in so many different things yeah. and, and had such a rich uh, inner life. Also, it's true that I, I do give a, quite a lot of attention to contextualizing. Pessoa lived in a, a fascinating period, mm. born in 1888. Portugal was a monarchy. As I mentioned, he was in, in Durban in South Africa, and that was at the time of the Boer War, uh, and Pessoa was there at that time. Then he comes back to Portugal, and the monarchy is falling apart. A king is assassinated. And then in 1910, finally, it becomes a, a republic, but it was a rather dysfunctional republic for you know, a decade and a half. And then a military dictatorship comes into power in 1926. And then Salazar arrives on the scene a few years later and becomes a dictator who was in power for, for a number of decades. And of course, there's World War I happening. So it's, it's a fascinating period. And, and it all bears quite a lot of Pessoa because Pessoa was uh, always writing about politics 
and uh, had you know, many many ideas and conflicting ideas about that and about the places where he lived, Portugal and its history and its destiny. So contextualization is particularly important for Pessoa. Pessoa was, in his way, an imperialist. Yeah, in those days, practically everybody was. Empire was you know, considered a good thing by, by, by most Europeans. Of course, you have the Austro-Hungarian Empire, various empires, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, many uh, Europeans lived under the rule of, of empires, actually. And then they had all their these empires. You know, they had divvied up Africa and, and had all these colonies in, mm-hmm. in Africa, as well as protectorates and so forth in, in Asia. But Pessoa, although he was an imperialist and ha- had this mindset, he didn't have much use for the Portuguese colonies. He, he questioned whether they were really worth preserving. Um, he had his own a very different idea of empire, which was a, a cultural empire. And in fact, in 1950 is when he first developed that idea. So what was the idea? Portugal was a small country and therefore couldn't even hope to have a, a military empire as, you know, say, Germany could or, or Great Britain could. But he thought that there could be a, a renaissance, something similar to the Italian renaissance, but now spearheaded by Portugal and through through its culture could dominate in a certain way, the, you know, right. the rest of Europe and, and even the world. Right. It was a very poetic idea. <laughs> it, it was one that Pessoa wrote a lot about and, and, and thought a lot about. Again, this is a good section of the book because it does detail this kind of, I think you term it a spiritual imperialism or something of that nature. But, you know, Pessoa, I think, tries to defend or defends, I guess, uh, a country like Germany that has the culture that it has, that it has a right to sort of advance its culture. And I'm not sure if that's a defense of violent, uh, you know, overthrow of other countries or not, but it's a, a defense of a particular kind of uh, world culture that deserves to be, what, dominant in the world? Uh, so in a sense, as you talk about him perhaps not caring necessarily about colonial Africa, it's because there's no culture there, you know, no no need to take culture there, etc. Well, that's an interesting question. Well, he, yeah, he certainly didn't feel too much the need to take culture there, you know, take European culture there, which is not to say that he was concerned about preserving African culture. You know, so was very uh, European in his in his upbringing. The school he went to in Durban, there was only white children who went to the school. Mm-hmm. He received a very English education. So one could argue that he thought it was best not to interfere, perhaps in, 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 in certain cultures, unless you had something to offer. So I don't know, maybe the, maybe the idea of imposing European culture, inflicting whatever, European culture in, in African nations. Masoa doesn't seem to really have pronounced himself on that, on that question. Maybe mm-hmm. he wouldn't have been so opposed. Mm-hmm. But in, in terms of Germany, he, f- he did admire German culture, you know, the philosophers, musicians, Beethoven, Wagner, and so forth. Again, this is all part of this you know, rather poetic idea that has to do with his, his imperialism that Germany because of this culture, did have the right to spread that culture, even through war. However, I said Pessoa, but but actually only part of Pessoa thought that way. <laughs> Pessoa in, invented a, a heteronym in uh, 1915. His major heteronyms, you already mentioned, Alvaro de Campos, and there was also Alberto Cairo and Ricardo Reis, emerged in 1914. But then in 1915, another one that emerges, Antonio Mora, 
Antonio Mora, also was the author of a so-called dissertation in favor of Germany, so t- took the side of Germany in the war. However, Pessoa himself, himself tended to side with the Allies, somewhat reluctantly. So you, you find in Pessoa, he, he takes conflicting positions. Pessoa in 1915 wrote actually his first piece of journalism. And in, in the first article he wrote, he said that a intellectual has a cerebral obligation to change opinion several times in the same day. So Pessoa was highly flexible mentally and was always changing opinion. Pessoa was was always coming up with these experiments. Each of the heteronym was a kind of experiment Mm -hmm. and some of these ideas like his uh, cultural imperialism or spiritual imperialism, they they were experiments in a sense. It's time for a break. This is Conversation from Max Roach, off of Deeds, Not Words, from 1961. Next up, Muriel Rukeyser in the poetry of anti-fascism. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Interchange. Next up for part two of the 2021 Producers' Choice Awards is How to Be an Anti-Fascist, which centers on Muriel Rukeyser's 1949 book, The Life of Poetry. Our guest is Eric Kinahan, and we'll hear two clips of Rukeyser as well. In the life of poetry, you know, she famously talks about the ways in which a poem is is not just sort of a, a thing on a pa- piece of paper, but it's instead an experience, and it's an experience that can be shared. Poetry for her is just a way of describing a series of relationships that one has to not just an artwork, but also to the artist who made it, as well as to other audiences of the same artwork. She was really drawing on this body of thought of thinking about sort of how art is a living organism and therefore becomes an extension of both the artist as well as the audience who engages with the artwork. I think that the role of the poet meets the role of anybody else in the way in which we can understand, as Collingwood says, what it feels like to be a person thinking these things. That the poet can have, at this time, a great deal to do with the bringing to consciousness of the buried life of the emotions among us at this time, and of the belief in the moment, in all its meanings, in all its randomness, in all its funniness, in the ways in which the roots are recognized of what we do and what we become. I think the kinds of meanings that exist in the words of poetry are shut away to a certain extent from us now, in which we have a time when the moment, the attempt to hold on to the moment, is almost being made a last stand struggle. The attempt to think of time as a static succession of points and that the ways in which the poem, living and moving in time, the shortest of arts, if you like, of those that live in time, can call upon the ideas of flow, of growth, of transformation in us. The language of this can be drawn from many different places. I know I I go to the language of water, of embryology, of morphology in books like uh, Thompson's Growth and Form to make a vocabulary which seems to me to be almost lacking in present English of process. And the idea of process, of transformation, of possibility is, I think, very deep in the part that the poet plays in life. Although here it meets the part of anyone who is willing to be receptive to the creative and to make something of that receptivity. I don't know really how these things can be split, although I know that in the giving up of self during the writing of a poem, as in love, in bringing to birth, in any of the very deep places in our lives where self is more or less given up, that we do reach each other and that there is a way of sharing this kind of experience. And that seems to me to be the center of this function. The 
the lecture series where the life of poetry began, again, it was called The Usable Truth, that's based on people couldn't read Melville's handwriting. And so Melville had written a famous letter to Hawthorne uh, where he talks about what had been interpreted for, at that point, several, several decades as the phrase, the usable truth. The literature gives us the usable truth. But he was actually writing the visible truth. Right. right. Uh, so when Rukeyser invokes the usable truth and invoking uh, this misreading or misunderstanding of Melville, she began the book in 1940, and it was published in 49. And she, it began as a series of lectures that she gave first at Vassar College, and then they were reprised um, in 1945 at the California Labor School. And then in 1946, she gave them at Columbia University, uh, offered as a course at the Extension School. And then in 1948, she gave the lectures again at the California Labor School, again, as courses. But it initially began as this four-night lecture series at Vassar. The only lectures that are extant in terms of the entirety of the series are the 1940 lectures which she had typed up as and, and had prepared to be published as a book, mm-hmm. uh, which she called The Usable Truth. She shopped it around for about a year, and um, no one would touch it. One of the things that Rukeyser does throughout her career, but I think becomes really paradigmatic for her in the beginning of the 30s and then moving into the 40s, is really being able to confront aspects of one's own self. She was invested in the idea that art itself could be a tool for addressing and confronting sort of the nature of, of, of one's own environment, cultural environment, political environment, social environment. And so it was really part of the fabric of sort of an American cultural life and an individual's own life as well. I, I've come to think of her as a synthetic thinker, but a lot of what I'm interested in and sort of what I think actually good artwork and good criticism is invested in is kind of derivation like drawing from different sources and synthesizing them into your own idiosyncratic way of seeing the world and articulating your experience of the world. But she really drew on like this whole plethora of sources um, from total different kind of range, you know, in order to create this, this vision that was actually pretty uniquely her own and yet also not uniquely her own. Muriel Rukeyser reads a poem from a series in her experimental biography of Wendell Wilkie, One Life, a book of impressions, passages from political transcripts and newspapers, from Wilkie's own writings and the statements of others about him, and from Rukeyser's poems, so arranged that they add up to more than the mere reporting of fact. In your time, there have been those who spoke clearly for the moment of lightning, Were we all brave, but at different times? Even raped open and split, even anonymous, they spoke. They are not forgotten, but they are. In late summer, forgot, caught at cross-purposes, interrupted in an hour of purity, their lives careening along in the fierce cities, through atrocious poverties and magnificence, the unforgotten, The early gone forgot, late daytime, and nothing left to hide but an eye endowed with the charred, guilty, gouged by war, the raging splendor. Despised like you, criminal in intent, sunburnt, in love and splendid, this heart, naked and knocking, going in clouds, smoke, and a cry of light, in pain, 
the voice of pain, the shadow of your cry. And never forget, you are magnificent beyond all colors. think about this kind of creation of the idea of America, right? So in the life of poetry, obviously, she goes to what have to be our standard authors uh, in terms of literature, Melville Whitman, uh, she mentions Dickinson, but briefly. To understand anything of ourselves, we have to understand everything that might be possible to understand of human personality. It's kind of a manifesto of, of life in general, how to perceive uh, the world around you, how to be imaginative uh, and not be constricted uh, by conformity. She addresses all these issues, even if she's confusing in the addressing, right? Even if she confuses us, even if we go to the Wilkie biography and make it through it and think, what a confusing thing, we still are confronting a problem. We still have to bring ourselves to that problem. And, and that's a part of what she's talking about also. She kind of forces you to to, you know, walk straight into the fight. Part of the genius of it is to get at not just the contradiction, but also the confrontation. And so, I mean, those figures that you flagged, who we think of as being central to American literature, thinking about Whitman, thinking about Melville, thinking about Dickinson, these are figures who aren't really being studied or seen as um, the cornerstones of American literature in the 1940s. Right, right. You know, they begin to be championed by one of her friends, F.O. Matheson, a Harvard professor, literary critic, who wrote a big, fat, famous book called The American Renaissance. So one of the things that she ends up doing is, you know, going to these figures, literary figures and other figures from other fields and from politics, from anthropology. I like how you characterize it. Doug, as making us sort of face something or see something. Uh, there is this degree of confrontation uh, that is really, I think, important to her approach to life, <laughs> as well as, as to writing. And the two are inseparable for her. Life and writing are, are virtually coterminous for her. You know, the question of what, what does that have to do with fascism? This is one of the things that I'm, I've just been sort of cycling back to and sort of working through is thinking about how much anti-fascism increasingly today is is being thought through and discussed by activists and thinkers as 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 forms of confrontation as for you know the necessity of confrontation that it's it's not a politics you know it's in an ideological sense you know it's a position you know it's a being being able to recognize a threat and to identify it and to confront it It's time for another break. This is Tender Warriors, another from Max Roach, off of Percussion Bittersweet. Stay with us for more of part two of the 2021 Producers' Choice Awards, The Poetry Show, when Interchange returns.
Welcome back to Interchange. This is part two of the Producers' Choice Awards, The Poetry Show. And the poet to come is Sylvia Plath. This show was called Fixing the Stars, and our guest was Heather Clark, author of the new biography of Plath called Red Comet, published by Knopf. In what follows, we also hear Plath read from her work. interest in the life is because of the death. Uh, obviously, there'd be interest in her work and mm-hmm. perhaps interest in understanding you know, the, the life that brings the art into being. The suicide is so essential to her readership in a lot of ways, right? I didn't want to write a book that centered the suicide and centered the mental illness and the mm-hmm. experiences with depression. Now, having said that, um, those were really important experiences in her life. Her, you know, her, especially her dealings with depression. And I didn't didn't want to minimize it or sanitize it in any way. But I also didn't want to sensationalize it. You know, I've been thinking about Britney Spears lately because of this New York Times documentary and just this idea of how we as a how we as a society love to watch the spectacle of a woman falling apart. And, you know, we, we sort of feasted on Spears' dissolution back in the early 2000s. And I sometimes think that Plath is a kind of a posthumous victim of, of that kind of, you know, want, people wanting to watch the train wreck or the freak show. And and so I, I was trying to get away from that. And, and again, trying to get away from that more sensationalistic narrative of her dissolution and just make the case that, this is one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Not greatest woman writers, you know, not greatest feminist writers or mad writers or whatever you want to say, one of the greatest writers. I think basically the whole book is an attempt for me to make that case. <laughs> and and I and this question is well, would she have been as famous if she hadn't died by suicide? Some of those late poems were picked up and published. A lot of them had already been slated for publication before her suicide. And that's something I don't think people realize. It's not like the suicide happened and then and then there was this huge rush to publish Sylvia Plath. I think it was New Yorker in particular had rejected multiple things, yes. but, at, but at the yes. same time accepted several things. And of course, you had people like Ted Hughes and Alvarez championing her work after her death. And they were very powerful. You know, they had the ear of the critical establishment. And then, and so, you know, their intervention is, was certainly important in terms of her posthumous reputation. Do you have uh, favorite poems? I mean, and people do. I assume you have yours after having worked so long with them. I actually, I think I like the, the bleak ones the best. <laughs> I think the ones about what, well, I think they're about depression, mm-hmm. um, are my favorites, like The Moon and the Yew Tree and Sheep and Fog. I think those are maybe my two favorites. Okay. Um, maybe The Moon and the Yew Tree. Uh, the first line, this is the light of the mind, cold and planetary. Ugh, I mean, what a first line. I just think she aestheticizes this this experience of depression in such an arresting and compelling way. And in fact, the, the title of this book for seven years or so was The Light of the Mind, um, a biography of Sylvia Plath. 
you know, one of the things that the images that struck me or strike me every time I, I, I dip into it is the sort of stars like under the water. Oh yeah. They're, they, they change, right? Sometimes they shimmer, sometimes they're stuck down there. Sometimes they're frozen, yeah. know, um, but it's like always under the water. Like in, you know, it's because you're gazing at the water, I guess you, you see the stars underneath. Yeah. Fixed stars govern our life in, in words. That's another one of my favorites words. Yeah. Another quite bleak poem, but are there poems that aren't bleak? Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> I actually love Lady Lazarus and the performative, campy black humor of it. I feel like Plath is almost turning the mirror back on us. The speaker of the poem is someone who is performing a kind of ghastly striptease, um, and the audience pays to come watch her perform another suicide. And I feel like in that poem, Plath is really speaking ironically, in a sense, just turning that mirror back on us and our need to be voyeurs and to, again, to watch that spectacle of the woman falling apart. And then um, she calls the audience the peanut crunching crowd. And, and I feel like that poem is quite prescient in terms of where we went with our culture and reality television and all kinds of things. So yeah, she's got her number. She does. Yeah. Lady Lazarus. I have done it again. One year in every ten, I manage it. A sort of walking miracle. My skin bright as a Nazi lampshade. My right foot a paperweight. My face a featureless fine Jew linen. Peel off the napkin, oh my enemy. Do I terrify? Yes, yes, Herr Professor, it is I. Can you deny the nose, the eye pits, the full set of teeth? The sour breath will vanish in a day. Soon, soon the flesh the grave cave ate will be at home on me, and I as a smiling woman. I'm only thirty, and like the cat, I have nine times to die. This is number three. What a trash to annihilate each decade, what a million filaments. The peanut-crunching crowd shoves in to see them and wrap me hand and foot, the big strip tease. Gentlemen, ladies, these are my hands, my knees. I may be skin and bone, I may be Japanese. Nevertheless, I am the same identical woman. The first time it happened, I was ten. It was an accident. The second time I meant to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut as a seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. Dying is an art, like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I've a call. It's easy enough to do it in a cell. It's easy enough to do it and stay put. It's the theatrical comeback in broad day to the same place, the same face, the same brute, amused shout, a miracle that knocks me out. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there is a charge, a very large charge, for a word or a touch or a bit of blood or a piece of my hair or my clothes. So, so, Herr Doctor. So, Herr Enemy. I am your opus. I am your valuable, the pure gold baby that melts to a shriek. I turn and burn. Do not think I underestimate your great concern. Ash, ash, 
You poke and stir, flesh, bone. There is nothing there, a cake of soap, a wedding ring, a gold filling. Hear God, hear Lucifer, beware, beware. Out of the ash I rise with my red hair, and I eat men like air. It wouldn't leave me alone, this idea that that Plath had been pathologized in in some of these previous biographies. And I just felt like she needed to be taken more seriously as as one of the most brilliant poets of her generation and not as the mad, quote unquote, mad, hysterical um, poet and the doom and gloom and this sort of thing. And um, and so I just decided that I was going to try to write this thing. And I wrote up a proposal and um, luckily Knopf wanted to publish it and gave me the the time and space to write a big book, which I don't take that for granted at all. Was there anything that has had happened at that point that made it seem like you would be able to do more with it than people had in the past? Yes. One of the, the reasons I finally decided that I would I would try to do this is because I knew there was a lot of new material coming down the pike. I knew that all of Sylvia Plath's surviving letters would be published in 2018. Um, and I, I was actually kind of helping with that project. So I, I knew all of that was going on. Uh, I knew that there was more to be mined in Ted Hughes's archives at the British Library and Emory. A new archival collection about Sylvia Plath opened at Emory fairly recently with lots of new files and new information. So so I was I was lucky in that sense. And of course, a lot of time had gone by. And I just think um, emotions were less raw. You know, it was I think it was a better time to write about Sylvia Plath 50 years later mm-hmm. um, in terms of just the historical perspective. So I had those those things on, on my side. Biographies are difficult uh, in lots of ways, as as you know, and, and particularly, as you already noted, with Plath, um, as much because Plath is the writer she is or Plath is many writers. There's so much that is... Yeah in different voice here, right? So yeah. Sylvia says this in her journal, Sylvia says this in her yeah. letters, you know, Ted says this in his journals, et cetera. Ted, yes. Somebody remembers X and somebody else remembers Y. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a minefield. I mean, I really tried to rely on the documentary evidence and there's a lot of quotation in the book because ultimately we just don't know. Um, and sometimes the best thing we can rely on is, is a letter bearing witness to an event with the caveat that Sylvia Plath, when she was writing to her mother, for example, would would try to paint a rosy picture, and I, you know, I tried to make that clear, right? And so there are different ways of of reading her her letters uh, as opposed to reading her journals, which are kind of more raw and honest about her vulnerabilities, her experience with depression, for example, which she very rarely touches on in her letters to others. But I was very lucky, again, I want to mention being able to quote from all of Sylvia Plath's surviving letters. I mean, that there hadn't been a biographer who had really been able to do that before. Overnight, very whitely, discreetly, very quietly, Our toes, our noses, take hold on the loam, acquire the air. Nobody sees us, stops us, betrays us. Small grains make room. Soft fists insist on heaving the needles, the leafy bedding, even the paving. Our hammers, our rams, earless and eyeless, perfectly voiceless, 
widen the crannies, shoulder through holes. We diet on water, on crumbs of shadow, bland-mannered, asking little or nothing. So many of us, so many of us. We are shelves, we are tables, we are meek, we are edible. Nudges and shovers in spite of ourselves, our kind multiplies. We shall by morning inherit the earth, our foot's in the door. It's time for our final break. Here's the title track from the 1958 Max Roach album, Deeds, Not Words. When we come back, we'll break down the narrative walls with Talia Field when Interchange returns. back to Interchange and the final selection of our 2021 Producers' Choice Awards, The Poetry Show. The segment that follows comes from our show, Captivating Fictions, with our guest, Talia Field. 
an experimental novelist, essayist, and poet, modes of writing that are often combined in any of Fields' text. Having read uh, Bird Lover's Backyard last and having just finished it, um, it's freshest in my mind, but also interestingly um, connected to my own reading. And again, this show I've had, um, I don't know if you know her or not, Colin Dayan on... Sure. Yeah, uh, and who, of course, uh, relies heavily on Vicki Hearn's work. Exactly. Uh, also, and so it was a pleasure to, you know, read that piece in particular uh, on on Vicki Hearn and her thinking. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that, just because it was okay. fun to me, and it was right there. You know, it's right there. It's fresh in my mind, and this will help, I think, um, also in terms of thinking about the text as one comes to it as a reader, as it has multiple parts, text that uh, that you, as you say, you you borrow or use from from other people vicky hearn is one of course and then obviously there are eaching pieces in there as well and then personal footnotes right those are personal Yep. Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah. I, I never want to assume those those That's things. Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> they seem personal. Um, they didn't need to be personal, but you wrote them as personal, so I I made the assumption. So often, what we hear from authority are monologues. When a dog first learns sit as a story, it's often about power, bribery. It's still one way. In other words, she appears to obey, but nothing's being said. One day, the dog sits all on her own, not just sitting around, but sitting in the manner of speaking. And if her command of language is respected, she's heard. Vicky wrote of Goering, the head of the Humane Society in Nazi Germany, making a radio announcement in 1933 that, in order that animal torturing shall not continue, I have now stepped in and will commit to concentration camps those who still think that they can continue to treat animals as inanimate property. The speech was ostensibly about vivisection, but more than that, it legitimized killing vicious or degenerate, mainly Jewish, scientists. Hearn uses Goering to show how displays of kindness can hide whole heaps of cruelty. Bandit's action was considered sufficiently criminal to warrant his death, what the people for the ethical treatment of animals labeled a sad necessity. She points out that in the Republic, Plato considered dogs most able to locate and guard the just city, while for providing the wrong sort of training, the poets were dismissed. But poetry is like Bandit in that it has no power over the state. And because it has no power over the state, it has no allegiance to the state, at least not under the conception of the state invoked by the word democracy, a conception that creates the fiction of the state obeying its citizens through the vote, as well as of citizens obeying the fictions of the state. So first, let's let's talk about that as as a, a kind of method or a form. Now, it's a, it's like um, how you feel reading 
and then writing about her reading and writing about, you know, parts of what she thinks about while she's reading. It's not always reading, but, yeah. but books are often involved, which okay. is funny because I often have experiences and then I, and then I make sense of them through reading. Mm, okay. uh, and that piece is actually a good example of that where the three different, the, it's a braid. And yes, you're right. The three different uh, strands of the braid. One is my experience working with Vicki Hearn directly, which I did as an animal trainer, um, and the kind of you know, lessons that I learned as a person about myself and my relationship to, at that point, my dog, Lila, um, and just how powerful and humbling it was to work with someone with a philosophical and a poetic mind about something so tangible as as dog training. Hmm. And the reason I had sought her out was because I was so attracted to that philosophical basis, how philosophy like that enacts itself in real life. And I found that to be such a powerful time for me. And so the I Ching simultaneously, my, I wasn't really a reader really growing up. And, the, and, and I, as I say in that piece, like my first real relationship, ironically, was in some ways with the I Ching as a book, which became a very practical source of well, both frustration and mystery and wisdom. Um, but the book uh, was, I was having this experience where I was constantly coming to a part where it was sort of telling me youthful folly, youthful folly. And I was not humble. I couldn't figure out the humility that the piece was talking about. I also was beginning a sort of Buddhist practice at the time. And so the idea of sitting, and then of course the command sit uh, when you're working with dog training and, and what it means to command or even expect collaboration from an animal. So a lot of this was going on. And then I, so I was thinking through that. Mm. Um, I do use uh, a lot of her work, a bandit in that piece only, but partly because it connects to the Conrad Lorenz piece in there where there's a sort of criminalization. I've, I've been very interested, of course, since working with Vicky on how the criminal system works with animals. Disobedience seems like a yes or no answer to an easy question. Children break rules, teenagers break rules, middle-aged women break rules. In fact, there's likely not a living creature who hasn't disobeyed some rules. The story of God's garden follows in kind, a false conflict between freedom and survival. The wild creature says, bite, you will not die. But the God says, oh yes you will. Adam instantly sees that the rules are mere tricks and nonsense made up by a easily frightened man. It's not eternity, but mortality that's bliss. Fruit rots sweet and falls apart, revealing the seeds it evolved to carry. There is no death in mortality. Springtime in captivity and one or two birds on rare occasion may bond in the sanctuary. They scrounge scraps into a makeshift nest. But there's no encouraging brooding, because what follows would be a clutch, and that would be too devastating, even deadly. In a nest hidden well enough to evade dismantling, the eggs are removed and boiled, put back dead. There's a reason broodiness is selected out from domestic birds. Farmers want productivity to prevail over family. Domestication eliminates claims to privacy, a life cycle de facto and de jure already spoken for. But captive wild animals do not accept punishment in response to bites and hiding. Those are wild ways, not wrong ones. God tries to deny Adam the wild right to deceive. 
the idea of the constructed false space or the constructed space like a zoo that is that is not a a home in any real way for human or an, uh, animal, uh, but uh, it's not dissimilar to stories or you know books etc. that are sort of constructed captivities in a lot of ways. And and it seems to me like a lot of your work is also trying to undo that particular aspect of writing within covers, you know, trying to to not let the idea of story dominate or the idea of how we think about stories dominate the thing you're writing. Um, they're not just disjunctive. Uh, they juxtapose in ways that make sense. But then there are things that make a reader work very hard to try to determine sense. These are points you're trying to make through the form itself. Yeah. And I think there's probably two, I would, I would identify two reasons why the, my work is generally always like this. One is that I really came up in theater. I worked in theater from when I was a young teenager, all the way till my early thirties. And so a lot of my interest in storytelling is how people speak, how people sound and the kind of performative environment, almost in a Steinian sense. Like I think of the text and the, and the book and the page as a performance environment. And therefore, I, I don't believe I've ever been entirely comfortable with sort of a written style. Mm. Um, and so I think that's probably one trajectory of what you would see in my work. Because when I started writing books, it was really an effort to kind of translate all my performance ideas into this new and sort of alien form. So I think that there's that. But there's also, yeah, I think the second piece that you brought up that I think is quite insightful is that I'm not often comfortable with stories where there's a singular and hermetic viewpoint. Mm -hmm. That's just not how I, maybe again, because of theater where you have multiple characters always arguing, talking, uh, you know, working, negotiating space. I think that I think of stories as negotiated space Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And therefore the page, the rupturing of kind of a, narrative surface is a bit interesting to me when it is dialectic or dialogic polyphonic it's a cacophony of ideas and people are and people are motivated to sort of bring their ideas forward despite the fact that other people might not agree in personhood there's a piece that we may or may not discuss about irrational situations Mm -hmm. and that's a little bit my narrative theory in a certain way like i feel like stories are kind of more irrational and less hermetic than naturalistic and novelistic inheritance that I guess people who are trained to write would come upon. Um, I think I was lucky in a lot of ways just not to ever buy too much into that um, because it's just allowed me to do things kind of my own way. That closes the book on The Poetry Show part two of the 2021 Producers' Choice Awards. Our final music selection is Mendacity, from the 1961 Max Roach album Percussion, Bittersweet, featuring Abby Lincoln on vocals. It's not the poet who's the liar, my friends. Mendacity, Mendacity, it makes the world go round. A politician makes a speech And never hears the sound The campaign trail winds on and on In towns from coast to coast 
the winner ain't the one who's straight but he Thank you so much for supporting Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. I produce this episode of Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.